had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through the Library of America 100 pages at a time, and uh, in each episode, give my thoughts on a little small slice of, of American writing. Um, so if you listen to my previous series on Willa Cather, especially towards the end where I looked at one of ours, uh, check that out if you're interested in, in that. You know, I didn't quite know what I was going to do. I, I got a, like three more weeks in Wisconsin before I start a new job in China. And, you know, things get really distracting here when I spend my summers in, in Wisconsin. A lot to do, a lot of time outdoors. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard to read in the, you know, the place I'm with and the people I'm around. So I didn't know if I was going to commit to another series. I, I didn't have any volumes of the Library of America with me that I brought uh, from Asia. So I, I checked one out from the library, and the one I checked out was an American tragedy by, by Theodore Dreiser, and I thought that would be my best chance to complete a series would be to do something that's just one novel, uh, although a lengthy novel. It's one volume of, of Library of America usually has many books in it, but occasionally you just get one for the longer works, and certainly the American tragedy, and American tragedy is one of those longer, longer works. It comes in at over 900 pages. So it'd be about nine episodes. It'd be the longest series I ever did. I knew these kinds of long series would come eventually. And I, you know, I was debating whether to do this just because I didn't want to finish it um, and not be done. And then I wouldn't have a copy of, of the book uh, and I'd have to go buy one and, and all that. So I was debating whether to do it, but I decided to go ahead and give it a try and try to read hundred pages each day and record each day. So it's going to be a different approach. Usually I read the whole book and then go back and kind of skim it again and reread sections and then take notes. This time I'm just going to listen or read. I do have an audiobook version uh, to 100 pages of it and then pretty much immediately give my thoughts on that section of, of the book. And so it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little more sporadic, but it's more likely I'll be able to finish my thoughts on an American tragedy. But because we're going to have so long with this book, I think we're going to have a lot we're able to talk about. So... Um, so let's do it. Let's let's go in and, and start talking about the American tragedy. I'll start out slow because I don't know what really happens. I, I know the rough outline just from, you know, my basic knowledge about Dreiser and American literature. I don't know a lot of the details uh, that go into it. So this usually in this podcast, I try, like, try to start with the early works and work through even when I don't look at all the works in one sitting. You know, I try to look at the earliest ones and, and go through chronologically. Uh, with authors. I don't don't always do that, though. In this case, uh, The American Tragedy was one of Dreiser's later works. It was published in 1925. Dreiser would live into the 1940s, but uh, this is kind of a late work because he'd already become famous with Sister Carrie, and that's that's one of his earlier novels. Um, it is, though, in the same tradition of American naturalism, which is something we were introduced to in the works of, of Frank Norris and, and Dreiser, of course, much more long-lived, much more uh, substantial career. You know, he didn't write that many novels, though, so it's kind of a containable, you know, studyable uh, figure in American letters. 
The American Tragedy is one of the most popular novels and one of his most famous. It was one that really was his, uh, I don't want to say a breakout novel because it was already well known, but it really kind of pushed him to a different level of, of uh, you know, of, of, where, of people knowing about him, right? There was musicals about this. There was movies made, adaptations made, and Broadway shows and things like that. So it, it was branched off in many different um, venues. Now, the story itself is based fairly closely on a murder that took place early in the 20th century. In fact, Dreiser had been studying this for like 20 years, collecting knowledge, collecting information about this famous um, murder murder case. And so this was like, in a way, research for 20 years before he finally got to it. And I don't know how much of that time he spent actively studying this, but he was studying scandalous, famous murder trials. And that's the centerpiece of this story is is a murder. Now, the real murder took place in July 11th, 1906 in upstate New York. The murderer or the supposed murderer of the accused was Chester Gillette. He was put on trial and convicted of, of killing uh, this woman, Grace Brown. He claimed it was a suicide and that was like the trial. And it became a very, very famous and one of those kind of celebrity trials almost, although he wasn't a celebrity, but it became one of those trials that everyone was talking about, right? Like the Scopes Monkey trial or the Joe Hill one or the Sacco Vincetti trial. And actually, the Sacco Vincetti trial was something Dreiser was involved with. He, you know, wrote about them and, and publicly defended Sacco and Vincetti. Of course, Dreiser was on the political left, a, a socialist throughout his life, a supporter of the Soviet Union. So that that's kind of his politics. Very, fairly common among naturalists. You, you see it in Jack London. You see it to a degree in Frank Norris, although I don't think Frank Norris ever came out as a socialist, but you certainly see anti-capitalist themes in, in his works as well. But anyways, this is the trial that really sparked Dreiser's interest. And he studied it closely. And he, the main character of American Tragedy, Clyde Griffiths, is based on this real-life character, Chester Gillette. And a lot of the background of these characters are, are the same and a lot of the social context. And Dreiser, of course, is very good at talking about this trial, and he, he's going to go into a lot of detail. I, I, you know, From what I've read about this, it's very, very good on the trial components, although I haven't got to them yet. But right away when you pick up this book, you know you're reading a novel that is throwing you into this complex urban world of, of turn-of-the-century America. Now, I know in this podcast we've come back to this again and again in works like from when we read Jack London and Frank Norris and others. It's kind of a period I gravitate back to. It's, it's a period of time I'm very interested in. So it's, a, it's something we're very familiar with in, in literature, but I haven't read any scenes that kind of just jump out of the page as sharply as what I've read in Dreiser. You know, compared to just the way it flows and, and it comes into your mind from the page, nothing like that in Jack London, I think. It's it's so well done, and it really captured your interest. Although it's like 900 pages, it doesn't feel like that as you're reading, or in my case, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of it. it. It just, it's so sharp and vivid, and everything is so believable and sharp. It's really well, very, very well done. I'm, I'm kind of in awe, actually, of... of of this novel and you know I haven't really read much of Dreiser before I just kind of knew the name and I, I knew some of the books he wrote but it, it's it's so one, great so I really recommend you you know picking this up and and reading it so over the next 
nine days, essentially maybe 10 or 12, depending on if I have to skip a day, I'm going to be reading this novel and then recording my thoughts as I, as I read it. So it's going to be a slightly different format. Um, I, I'll release these episodes, of course, later in a more um, spread out fashion. But uh, let's, let's see how it goes. Um, okay, the opening scene of this novel is fairly memorable. Uh, the novel's in three books. The first book is about 150 pages, and the other two are, are much longer. The whole book is about 900 pages. Um, but that's the basic structure. I don't know the significance of those breaks yet, though, because I've just... I'm basically giving these comments as I as I read the book, but this opening chapter is so so vivid. Basically, the scene we have is a city. It turns out it could be any city, but we're we're, we're setting Kansas City early in the novel. But Dreiser doesn't reveal that yet. He just presents it as as kind of any American city um, from that time. He says a a commercial heart of an American city of perhaps four hundred thousand inhabitants. Such walls as time may linger as a mere fable. So he he kind of gives a, a neutral generic city at the beginning and what we see is this family with a couple of miserable kids it's actually like five miserable kids with their parents going to a street corner where they pull out this organ and pull out hymnals and start singing hymns and evangelizing to the city right so this is that kind of urban missionary movement that was popular in the progressive era um, they're there was a lot of it. Of course, you had the settlement house movement, but you had a lot of other, like the social gospel movement, where there was this focus on the city as a space of evangelical um, proselytizing and missionary activity. You don't have to go to China necessarily to to find people who, whose souls need to be saved, right? Partially, this is a response to immigration and the, all these people coming in with new religious beliefs, particularly Catholicism. So Protestants said, well, you need to kind of shore up our morality. And then, of course, you have as the cities grew, more visible social problems. Now, these always existed in American cities, probably from the days of, like, Jamestown, essentially. But, you know, they became more conspicuous as urban life became more the centerpiece of, of American life. And these are things like prostitution and drinking and uh, broken families and orphans and, and all these things. It just became, there were things that are always in American life, even in the countryside, but they became something much more visible. And so re religious people turn to the cities as a place to, to set up missions. And, and that's what this character's Clyde's family does. He's one of the older kids in the family, and he really starts to resent this. He doesn't, he's not really religious. He doesn't really buy any of this, and he's just forced, dragged along by his parents. And these very awkward scenes where he's forced to sing along to these hymns and evangelize. Now, what does this mean for the family is that the family although potentially a middle-class family ends up being very poor because all the wealth gets pushed into mission work and into setting up missions. Often they, these fail. And then he's not like having a normal career, right? His father, I think it's at one point his father was like a, would sell inventions or something. This was his career, but he never did it systematically enough and, and consistently enough because he was always bouncing around these different kind of religious works. And the opening scene of these miserable kids, you know, the kids are different, though. Like one of the girls sings along because she likes being praised for a good singing voice, even though she doesn't have a good singing voice. The parents, of course, are way into it. And we get the background of the family and the parents, you know, and how they got together. And really, it seems the wife was brought into the religious zealotry by, by the husband, but she was sort of into it. 
he liked also that she could sing fairly well. The older kids, though, seem to to feel uncomfortable here and, and start to break away. Now, the focus of the narrative is on Clyde, who at this point in the story, he's like 15, 16, doesn't want to do this anymore. But it's a really memorable scene, seeing this this kind of this event in a street corner with this family trying to proselytize Christianity to the urban people of, of this city. Now, this is actually reflective of the real life of our of, of Chester Gillette, the real the subject of the novel. And if we go to the Wikipedia page for Chester Gillette, we learn, quote, Gillette was born in Montana, but spent part of his childhood in Spokane, Washington. His parents were financially comfortable, but deeply religious, and eventually renounced material wealth to join the Salvation Army. The family traveled across the United States, West Coast, and to Hawaii during his adolescence. Chester never took to the religious aspects of his upbringing. He attended Oberlin's college preparatory school on the generosity of a wealthy uncle, but left after two years in 1903. After leaving school, he worked at odd jobs till 1904 when he took a position at the uncle's shirt factory in Cortland, New York. So there's there's parallels here. I, it seems Chester Dillett was more well-educated than Clyde was, because Clyde, at least as far as I'm into it, never got you know, much of a schooling at all. In fact, this religious work distracted the family from properly educating his his children. So the girls are kind of naive and, and stupid and make bad choices. Uh, Clyde knows he's not educated enough and runs into this when he says, I need to start making money on my own because my family is useless. And he tries to try making for money for himself and he can't really get a job, right? That's not menial labor. And he's frustrated by that. But he really knows it's because he hasn't been properly educated. Properly educated. So after this really wonderful opening scene, very, very memorable, we are then given more of the background of, of Clyde and his family and how they moved around and their unstable financial circumstances, the lack of an education among, among the children. Now, Clyde sort of goes along with this because what else can he do? He's, he's a child, um, but he's, he seems to be fairly aware of the weirdness of his family and especially when he gets older and he wants to interact with girls or even have friends over male friends over he really can't because everyone knows the oddity that is his family so uh we get this quote for clyde was as vain and proud as he was poor he was one of those interesting individuals who looked upon himself as a thing apart never quite wholly and indissolubly merged with the family of which he was a member never with any profound obligation to those who he had been responsible for coming into this, who had been responsible for him coming into the world. On the contrary, he was inclined to study his parents, not too sharply or bitterly, but with a fair, very fair grasp of their qualities and capabilities. And yet, with so much judgment in that direction, he was never quite able, at least not until he reached his 16th year, to formulate any policy in regards to himself, and that only in a rather fumbling and tentative way. And Dreiser right away goes into the, his sexual uh, burgeoning and is going to sexual... Uh, interesting in women and how this is frustrated by the fact that his family is is so odd and he actually starts to think about how is he handsome or not why is he having trouble with girls and he realizes it's really his family that that does that that breaks up uh breaks up his relationship with other people uh, outside of his family he seems to have the closest relationship with uh, was with esta his sister and she's actually the one who breaks away from the family first. Um, so it's the two older children are Clyde and Esta. And Esta is the one who's going to branch off first. And that's really the big kind of, that's a, that's a, 
a turning point, and I hope it comes back. I, I do hope we find out more about what happens to Esta because it, it's kind of, it's suggesting what I've read here that she's sort of swindled. I don't know if that's really what happened, but, but we'll see. Essentially, Esta one day leaves, just leaving a note on her pillow that she's gone off with a man, basically to a Lopa man. And, and we get the background of this courtship, and basically he's described as a quote-unquote a masher. And that's, I don't quite know what a masher is, if that was kind of the slang from the 1920s or early 20th century, but that's who she runs into. And he basically proposes to her and, and says, we got to get go away, and promises all these things. And she, just on a whim, leaves with him and, and elopes with him. Now, I get the sense, here's my prediction, not knowing what's coming up, is that she's either going to be abandoned very quickly in that relationship, and then she's going to have to turn to maybe prostitution or some other um, life that may be part of the tragedy. I know the tragedy centers around Clyde, but there might be a, 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 a second level of tragedy with, with Esta. Or maybe the whole thing is a scam to, to move her into prostitution, right? It's kind of like the, the, the whole white slavery stuff. And I know there's a lot of scandals reporting on that stuff in the turn of the century and earlier in, in kind of early urban America. There's a lot of focus in popular literature on kind of the white slavery and early you know, human trafficking in those days. And this was kind of one of the schemes, right? Someone would seduce a girl and then wish her away and then, you know, leave her with nothing and force her into um, you know, working for as a, as a prostitute. But anyways, that's what happens. So Esther is the one who gets out first. The family, the parents take it, you know, hard, but they also take it with a degree of religious stoicism. This idea that kind of like, you know, we got to keep our hearts open to God and Jesus and things happen for a reason and all that, that religious nonsense that you would expect from parents that are so devoted to, to the faith. Um, but it's, it's kind of, a turning point for, for Clyde, partially because he doesn't see why it's a bad thing for Esther to leave. Quote, truly, in spite of his father and mother's misery, he cannot see that her going was such a calamity. Not from the going point of view, at any rate. It was only another something which hinted that things were not right here. Mission work was nothing. All this religious emotion and talk was not much uh, either. It hadn't served Esther. Evidently, like himself, she didn't believe so much in it either. So that, that brings us to the end of chapter three. And then we kind of move more and more to a focus on Clyde's development and Clyde's kind of searching out for his own way. Now, he's not as reckless as Esta. Uh, now, there are moments where the family's like, well, maybe it's time to move on to another city, right? And Clyde knows how that's going to end up. It's just going to be another mission, another failure, more money drained away, more starvation and, and, and poverty. So he doesn't really want to do it. So he kind of hints, well, maybe I'll get a job and I'll stay behind. I'm old enough now. And the family you know, doesn't really like that. But he eventually does start like scoping, you know, scoping the want ads, looking for jobs. And he's frustrated because a lot of the jobs he wants, he's not qualified for because he doesn't have an education, uh, certainly not a higher education, not really anything, you know, beyond reading and writing, it seems, you know, because the family's religious work kept him from going to school. So what, you know, he needs, he wants to find a job. And he eventually finds work as basically as a soda fountain, like a soda jerk. And he does that for a while, but he really doesn't like it very much. And it doesn't really bring in too much money. He sort of gives up on whatever sporadic schooling he had and, and gets his job as a, as a soda jerk. How much does he make? It says here somewhere how much he makes, but it's not much. And he doesn't have a really good relationship with his manager and his employer. And 
eventually he has to leave that job as well. But it's during this that he's really he's a, he's a young man, right? He's like 15, 16 at this point. So he's really starting to have this sexual awakening. And Dreiser talks about this in very frank terms. But really the city becomes, you know, you know, filled with beautiful girls. I, I suppose that happens to all young men at some point. Heterosexual men anyways. Quote, and best of all, as Clyde now found to his pleasure and yet despair at times, the place he visited just before and after the show on matinee days by bevies of girls, single and in sweet, who sat at his counter and giggled and chattered and gave their hair and their complexions last perfecting touches before the mirror. And Clyde, callow and inexperienced in his ways of the world, and those of the opposite sex, was never weary of observing the beauty of the daring, the self-sufficiency and the sweetness of these as he saw them, end quote. And so that's partially the frustration he's facing, too, is he's, you know, he's starting to to want to get a girl and interact with girls. He doesn't really know how. He hasn't had that experience earlier in his, his life. Now, I would say in this first hundred pages I've read, Dreiser's very good at talking about how these women that he meets, and he's going to meet a lot throughout the first hundred pages of this book, really make him hot and bothered and how just the, the expressions like the blinking or the use of like the flicking of the hair or what they wear or what they how they smell how this is really bothering Clyde and it's really well done it's it's naturalism at it's at its greatest in the way it's because it's not just the straight-up realism that you know it's it's naturalism much more about the experience of reality right that's what we saw a lot in Frank Norris and Dreiser is such a master of it and you you really feel Clyde's frustration at the when the girls flirt with him or they make a certain gesture that kind of really excites him and it's just done so well you know, throughout this this early part of the novel and he's really able to put his mind into that of a of a 16 year old boy you know who's you know trying to figure out what to do with these strange creatures women and we get all the adolescent frustration and anxieties and 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 things like that um especially in this interaction with the fair sex so um it's about this time that that the family starts to say we're going to move to denver and he wants to stay in kansas city and so this becomes a break in the family and the relationship between the family seems to be a major theme in this this novel right how does the good religious boy right turn evil (laughs) to turn to the dark side right you know, we le- we know for internally from Clyde's perspective that he never really was on board the religious narrative that his family has been giving him, but that's still like the overarching question we're given here. So he eventually gives up on his job at this soda jerk and he goes to a hotel. And this hotel, he's a- he basically walks in and says he wants a job, and the guy's like, "Well, you really don't have anything." And then his persistence pays off, and he's he impresses the manager or the owner or whatever, and then he gets this job working at the at the hotel basically as you know basically as a bellhop and he gets the job and the salary is not much it's like $15 a month but he's promised something like 10 $15 a week in in tips and so he's going to have more money than he in a, in a sense knows what to do with and that that's going to be part of the tragedy part of the downfall at least from the from the first few chapters we get the sense that money is is part of the corrupting influence he never really had money before so it never becomes an issue but now even though it's not much it's it's you know it's riches to him now a couple interesting things here now we've seen in the harlem renaissance novels the kind of the danger i think it was especially in langston hughes's book not without laughter this idea that the, working at the hotel is bad right that's that's 
that's one step away from hell. You know, it's full of sin. It's a, you know, we don't want your kid working there. I, I don't know if there's any equivalent. I, you know, I don't think that has the same stigma, and I don't know why it had the stigma at the time. It certainly is fulfilled here. Maybe it's the people you interact with, you know, that, you know, people coming and going, it's a little bit more suspicious. But that that idea that I thought was a bit odd when I read the Harlem Renaissance novels about why is the working in a hotel so dangerous is kind of lived out in this novel. So I, I'm presuming it's true to life. But the other interesting thing about the hotel thing here, and it's something that Dreiser mentions at one point, is that this, it's, this is the moment, moment where hotels start to advertise themselves and promote themselves as providing luxury to everyone or luxury to the masses, right? Yeah, you can't live like a king. You, you can't live in a mansion. You can't have servants. But for a week or for a few days, if you stay in our hotel, you can live that way, right? So it, it become, makes luxurious, elite, aristocratic living almost a a you know something everyone can afford right for a short period of time it's like you can rent a life as an aristocrat and that is really interestingly you know just mentioned it, it i don't know if something he dwells on but it's something that that's mentioned and it really caught my my ears and something that maybe is worth worthy of looking into a bit more historically you know what how were hotels advertising themselves at the time you know was it part of this broader consumer revolution and i'm, I'm certain it was you know that even that's a big part of the consumer revolution, right? Like, yeah, you can't, you know, we can't go to the opera every week, but you can listen to Wagner in your gramophone, you know, in-home gramophone, right, or through the radio. So consumer goods become a way of democratizing access to pleasures that previously were only accessible by the rich. And again, I think it's just one line here, but it struck my interest. Now, with this, now his official income is like $15 a month, and that's where, sort of what he reports to his parents. Um, his actual income is is probably four times that with tips. He doesn't do that because he knows like 90% of his paycheck is going to go to support the family, right? That's impoverished. So he starts to basically hide money away. And so he's going to have a lot of cash that his family doesn't really know about. It's also, as far as I can tell, that's the first time he's straight up lied to his family about things. I guess he he's not religious and that's a bit of a lie, but it's kind of another step uh, kind of crossing a certain line, it seems. I will also say that that Clyde begins to feel a lot of pride and honor with the uniform and with the job and the money he's bringing in. And he's, he's being exposed to a new group of people and he's starting to make friends with with other people. And this, these are all parts of growing up for Clyde. They're, they're, you know, he's becoming mature financially. He's becoming mature in that he has his own social circle outside of his family. He's able to break free of his family. He spends less and less time there. Right. The hours at the hotel mean he doesn't have to eat at home and he kind of leaves sometime in the day, but he doesn't have to come home till like after midnight. So he doesn't have to spend time with his family. He's, he's kind of declared his independence, even though he still lives at home. And he's financially independent. He's got his own social network. And then that really only leaves kind of the sexual awakening, which you know is going to happen um, pretty soon in the novel. One of the most significant of the friends he, he runs into, he meets as a bellhop, is this guy Ratner. And he's the one who starts to take him out more. And eventually he goes to a brothel. And so there's a whole chapter around this visit to a brothel where, you know, and he has sex with a prostitute. It's, it's uh, I think it's chapter 10 of book one where it's described, maybe chapter nine and 10, maybe it's actually a couple of chapters. Uh, there's a lot of discussion with the different girls at the brothel 
and there's some interesting palaver between them and his friends and stuff. So it's kind of a, actually a, a fairly well-written segment, but it ends with the disrobing of the prostitute, and you know what happens. Chapter 11 begins, quote, The effect of this adventure on Clyde was such as might have been expected in connection with one so new and strange to a world as this. In spite of all that deep and urgent curiosity and desire that had evidently led him to that place and caused him to yield, still because of the moral precepts in which he had been so long been familiar, and also because of the nervous aesthetic inhibitions which were characteristic of him, he could not but look back upon all this as disguidingly disgraceful and sinful. His parents were probably right when they preached that this was all low and shameful. And yet this whole adventure and the world in which it was laid, once it was over, was lit with a kind of gross pagan beauty or vulgar charm for him. And until others and more interesting things had partially effaced it, he could not help but think back upon it with considerable interest and pleasure even. So that's um, that's going to be part of his life, right? It's, it's not clear to me how often he goes, but... You know, his his first sexual encounters were, were with prostitutes. After that, though, he does uh, start to interact with, you know, girls more on a, a straight-up basis. And that's kind of how chapters 11 and 12 go. Now, the kind of girls he meets are all are all flirts. They're, they're essentially sort of, they're presented as charity girls. Uh, they're, I guess, flirts and they like to go dancing and they're out a lot they drink so they're that that archetype of of women that he runs into but one in particular he he starts to date horstens briggs is her name and she the the writing of the flirtation between these two is really well done and that's i was referring to this before the way dreiser describes like the hand motions and the eye motions and the the, the way these women talk to Clyde and you really can see you feel how he's being driven nuts by these women who he's infatuated with I mean he's he's kind of you know really hot for these these girls and they're really able to exploit that and and push the right buttons and um, Dreiser was really great on those sections I think um, and then chapter 12 essentially ends with a date that they go on and here's how he describes it uh Quote, and Clyde was captivated by all this. Her gestures, her poses, mores, attitudes were sensuous and suggestive. She seemed to like to tease, promise, lay herself open to certain charges and conclusions, and then to withhold and pretend that there was nothing to all of this. That she was very unconscious of anything save the most reserved thoughts in regard to herself. In the main, Clyde was thrilled and nourished by the mere proximity to her. It was torture and yet a sweet kind of torture. It was full of the most tantalizing thoughts about how wonderful it would be if only he were permitted to hold her close, kiss her mouth, bite her even, to cover her mouth with his, to smother her with kisses, to crush and pet her pretty figure. She would look at him at moments with deliberate swimming eyes, and he actually felt a little sick and weak, almost nauseated. His one dream was that by some process, either of charm or money, he could make himself interesting to her. Um, and that's, I guess that's the point I'm going to leave up, leave off here. So what we've seen is, is essentially Clyde asserting his independence from his very religious family and he breaks free of that kind of religious work the cycle of, of migration his fa family forced upon him through kind of the series of missions they were on and then how he kind of achieves his financial independence and he achieves some sort of sexual awakening through his encounters with prostitutes how he kind of ends up having a broader social network through the friends he meets in the hotel and how they lead him to different places and then he begins dating this this girl 
Hortense. I, it's a it's a bit of an odd name. I don't think I've ever heard it before, but that's that's where we're going to leave off. So so far, I'm really amazed at this book. I'm really uh, excited to to keep going. In fact, I think as soon as I'm done recording, I'm going to pick up and, and go into the second hundred pages of it. I'm really excited to see what Elsa Dreiser has planned in this story. A really great one. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun reading it. So I, if you've read uh, American Tragedy, you know, please let me know what you think about it. Give your own comments about it. Obviously, there's a lot I didn't talk about and there's a lot of big sections of this early part of the novel that I just skimmed over. So Offer your own contributions to this conversation. Let me know what you think. Um, yeah, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com with your thoughts, or you can just leave a review or, or leave a comment below. So thanks. Uh, sorry for the more, I guess, sporadic and uh, res- uh, reactionary uh, approach I'm going to take with this novel, but that's probably the best way to go about it, uh, given my, my social situation right now, the, the, this, the place I'm in and the situation I'm in. So... Um, thanks as always for listening uh, I'll be back next time with the, my thoughts on the second hundred pages of, of An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser that'll get us through book one of that and into book two so um, as always uh, thanks for listening I'll see you next time for story to tell you It's a story that's never been told.